And that was a, a wonderful, wonderful special solo. And it's so good to hear from you. You know, it's a real privilege for me to be back here to serve you folks in this capacity this morning. I'm thankful Ron had the confidence to allow me to fill his his pulpit. But you know, there's a lot of a lot of connections, a lot of relationships in this in this room this morning. Dan reminded me earlier that uh, his folks, Kurt and Edie, had their 60th anniversary just the other day, just this last week. And um, their little great-granddaughter should have been born about three days ago. But she's home and doing well. and It's so good just to be back. I'd like to have you stand as we turn in Matthew to chapter 16. And I'd like to have you read with me verses 13 through 19. You know, I've said this before in this in this church, but it's good to hear the ruffling, rustling of the leaves. It's kind of like the angel's wings, you know. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and you may be seated. Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him, saying, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It was as, as though Jesus was saying, in essence, Peter, this is the truth. And it's not something that has come from the concept of man. It's not something you conceived. It's something that's been revealed to you from God himself. Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ. In one of my commentaries, William Barclay says, the word Messiah and the word Christ are the very same word. One is Greek, one is Hebrew, for the anointed one. And essentially, Peter's discovery was that human categories, even the highest, are inadequate to describe Jesus Christ. When the people described Jesus as Elijah or Jeremiah as one of, or one of the prophets, they thought they were setting Jesus in the highest category they could find. These were great tributes, but they were not enough, for there are no human categories adequate to describe Jesus Christ. 
Peter's revelation also was that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And one of my commentaries says, this confession not only sees in Jesus a promised Messiah, but in this Messiah recognizes the divine nature. And it's precisely this claimed a deity that caused him to be, caused Jesus to be crucified. For they considered that to be blasphemy. You know, it's from this concept of Jesus being the Son of God and many other scriptures in, in the Bible that we get these, this, this theology, this doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three entities, three beings, but one person. A concept really uncomprehendable. A truth uncomprehendable. You know, it's that that caused John to say in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. Have you, have you heard of Louis Giglio? There's one person back there that knows who Louis Giglio is. Marcia wanted to say something in, my, in the Sunday school class this morning, but I told her, I'm going to be sharing this in my message. <clears throat> but if you go to his website, he shares some marvelous, marvelous things. And one of the things that he tells about and shows in his website is the marvelous constellations that's been discovered by the Hubble telescope. And one of the things in one of his programs, he says that there's a new star being created every second. Even like today, every second there's a new star being created. And the magnitude of those stars dwarf the earth. You know, as I thought about that and thought of the creation story, Genesis says that it took six days for God to create this earth. One second to create a star, six days to create the earth. He was forming it and making it just for us. Jesus still asks us today, who do you say that I am? And unfortunately, there's too many people today that will answer this question either with a misconception or they don't really grasp the truth of it or the, or the reality of it. The, the the typical thing that happens is that people tend to mystify Jesus in the spirit, in the spirit entity, or else they dwarf him down to the human level. And unfortunately, there's some of our modern day religions who have been established by men who missed it a little when they answered this question, who do you say that I am? But Jesus also says here in Matthew 16, 18, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And William Barclay says that when Jesus, what Jesus meant when he used this word rock, there's four different answers. One was that Augustine took the rock to mean Jesus himself. Secondly, that the rock is the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And third is the explanation that the rock is Peter's faith in Jesus being 
the Son of the living God. But the most logical and probably the the one that kind of incorporates all of these is that Peter himself is a rock in a very special sense. He's not the root, the rock on which the church is founded. That rock is God. But he's the first stone in the whole church. The first man on earth who discovered that Jesus is, a, is the Son of God, the living Son of the living God, the Christ. He was the first one to make that faith and see Jesus in this capacity. He was the first member of the church in that sense. And the whole church is built on him and on this reality. It's as if Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you are the first man to grasp who I am. And you are there for the first stone, the foundation stone, the very beginning of the church which I'm founding. And in ages to come, everyone who makes the same discovery will be a stone added into the edifice of the church of Jesus Christ. And again, back on that website of Louis Giglio's, there's a, a, a little, I don't know if it's a molecule, I'm not sure, it's within a molecule. It's called laminin. It's shaped like a cross. And it's in the DNA of every one of us. It's like the rebar that holds us together. The reason why I'm able to stand here this morning is because of this laminin that's in every one of these molecules, shaped like a cross. And you know the truth, the reality is that Jesus, who died on a cross, is the one who holds this body, this church, worldwide together. You know, I, I, I pastored this church long enough that I know a lot of stories. <clears throat> and I'm not going to take time to tell them all this morning. And... Um, you know, Kurt, uh, um, Neil mentioned this morning in the Sunday school class of two different perspectives. And so, you know, as I share this, these stories, I know you folks are probably going to have some different perspectives. But when I came here to this body back in 1988, there was a couple by the name of Bob and Coralia Henshaw here. And uh, Bob told me one day that prior to my coming, there was a pastor that was well-loved by this body, by this, by this people. And things happened, and he had to move. And when he left, many of the people found other church homes rather than remain here. And the church had dwindled down to just a handful of people. And so there, the bills didn't really dwindle. And they were wondering what they were going to do. And there was a, two couples that lived up at Seneca by the name of Gray and Springer and a handful of people here in John Day. And on a Saturday morning, they decided on a Saturday morning they were going to come to Star Ridge and they were going to pray and they were going to decide whether they were going to ask the district to step in and help them with the bills or maybe even say tell the district, you know, I don't think the church is going to be able to make it. But the morning... The morning that they were to meet, Bob and Coralie, there had been a family who had lived here and who moved away, and I don't remember, Bob told me, I think, the name, but I don't remember who they were. But they, Bob and Coralie received a letter from these folks, and in this letter it said they had been praying, and they felt that something was going on in the John Day church. They didn't know what it was, but they 
were just really troubled and felt impressed to send a $100 check to the church. Bob and Corlea took that check and that letter up to Star Ridge, shared with the Springers and the Grays, and they prayed. And just it was, it was just too real to them, the timing of all that, for them to think that Jesus was not still trying to build his church. And I don't know about you folks, but I'm thankful that they trusted Jesus to pay the bills and make it possible for this church to be here. Well, you know, there were there was a time while I was here when, um, and some of you probably, probably all of you have wondered why that rock's up there. You know, when I came, the church faced this way, and the platform was there, and there was a beautiful rock, you know, a veneer that was there, and a cross, and a lot of people came here to have their weddings because it's such a beautiful setting. But you know, because of vision and because of the church seeing we needed to, to expand the building, you know, we decided we were going to have to build on to the church. So we, the board and the, and the, and the church decided to set, up, set aside a building fund and encourage people to start giving to that building fund. And I don't know, it was two or three, four years, something like that, and we'd raised about twenty-five to 27000 I can't remember exactly what it was. But I remember we decided, well, you know, we better step out on faith here and start this building, even though we were pretty sure that it wasn't really going to be enough to finish. And Kurt was willing to take on the responsibility of seeing that addition built on there. And so we laid the foundation we poured the foundation and we built the walls on the bottom. Mostly Kurt did most of this work. Put the floor on over there and almost all of our money was gone. And about that time, I remember standing over there in the parsonage, receiving a phone call from a man back in Ohio. And um, this man told me that here, the bank that we were banking at, the Pioneer Bank here in, in John Day, as I understood, it was going to be going from what was private stock to public stock, and he had had enough involvement with that sort of thing to know that there was going to be a lot of money that was going to be possibly, um, that we could possibly receive as a result of being involved in that transaction. So sharing it with the people and the board, we, we knew we couldn't do this without the district's permission, so we went to the district and asked them. They gave us permission to do this. We accepted a loan or took out a loan kind of from this, this person. And um, because we were grandfathered into that Pioneer Bank, we were able to purchase the maximum number of stocks that we could purchase. And sure enough, when the transition took place, we more than doubled that money. One of the things we were required to do in accepting that money was to give 20 or 25 percent to some organizations like the Billy Graham Association, Focus on the Family, those kind of things. But even after we had given the money to those organizations, we still had enough to finish that building. We had the money left over to put on a, make a down payment on a parsonage. And you know, at that time we had a, we had a vision, a three-phase vision. We were going to build onto the church. And then we were going to have to sell the parsonage, which was this house next door here, or, or do something. We were going to have to buy a new parsonage, really, not sell that one. We were going to have to buy a new one. 
And um, then we were thinking we would expand this church building that direction, open it up. You know, which would have been a great thing yesterday when Jim's at Jim's funeral when they were so crowded. It would have been nice to have that extension of, of space. So, you know, because of that, we, we looked at some places throughout the community here, but the border and the people really felt like, you know, we really need to buy something close to this facility, close to this ground where we're already at. And Pig Hunter was living next door over here, and she kind of already told some people, you know, if, I, if and when I ever sell, I'll give you folks the first option. And so, you know, we, we thought, well, surely that must be the place. And I went to Peg and I told her what we were thinking and I remember her in their living in their room there just kind of shaking her head and walking the floor. And she said, you know, it's just really not the right time. She, she kind of explained what was going on with her family, her kids and so on, how she was really thinking someday of moving to Boise and whatever, you know, but it just really wasn't the right time. So here, the obvious was not necessarily going to be right. So I went down to the Burtons down here and to see if maybe they'd be interested in selling, you know, their their place back behind here. They weren't interested at all. And at that, it, it happened at that time that living next door here was Bud and Evelyn Sloan and and um, Ms. The, the the driveway here to the to the house is so close to the church. That when people would come to drop their kids off for sunshine school, many of them would park in the driveway. And she, Mrs. Sloan would come out, Evelyn would come out, and she would rant and rave at those people. Didn't they know this was a public driveway? Didn't they know that, you know, they weren't supposed to park here? And there were times you would even come downstairs and get on the, the secretary or whoever happened to be in the office. And so, you know, with that, with all that happening, I wasn't real comfortable going to talk to Evelyn about <clears throat> possibly her selling the house to us. But you know, it was around Thanksgiving time, and I don't know exactly what prompted Marsha and I to do this, but we felt impressed to invite Bud and Evelyn to have Thanksgiving dinner with us. I don't something going on with their family. They're all going to be with other, another, maybe the other side of the family or something anyway. So I went to them and invited them to have come have Thanksgiving dinner with us. And Surprise to me, they were glad to come and have Thanksgiving dinner, and we had a good time. We visited together, got acquainted a little bit, and so on. And so it's a little bit of the an anticipation kind of worn off a little bit. So a month, six weeks later, I finally got up the courage to go and ask Evelyn about, tell her what was going on, what we were thinking. And, you know, I really was sure, almost sure immediately she said, no, we're not interested in selling to the church. But, you know, it was totally different than that because Bud had cancer and they were thinking they needed to do something besides live here. And Evelyn would have been in the real estate and I was sure and we were all sure she knew what the value of that place was. And um, so she said, well, let us talk about it. And about a week later, I went back and talked to her and she said, you know, Bud and I have been talking and We'd be glad to sell the sell our house to you, to the church for $140,000. That's what we were thinking we would sell it for. But she said, you know, for the church, we'd be willing to sell it to you for. And I just my just my breath. 120,000. You know, Jesus said he would build his church. 
and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He also says there in verse 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys would be used to build his church. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven? I'm not going to ask all of you to answer, but I want you to think about it. You know, I think timing is one of those things. You know, the timing of that letter that Bob and Coralia received, the timing of Bud and Evelyn and Bud having cancer. You know, timing, I believe, is one of those keys to God building the kingdom. Another one I really believe is vision. God wants wants us to have a vision of reaching people. wants us to have a vision of building the kingdom, building the kingdom of heaven. But you know, I really think that the main key to all of this is the key of the presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ. You know, when you look at Peter's life, Jesus said here, you know, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Not very long after this, the day of Pentecost happened. Holy Spirit was poured out on those 120 people in that upper room. And that very day, Peter was used to preach to the multitudes that gathered because of the sound, the rushing mighty wind. And 3,000 souls were entered into the church that day. They were baptized and brought into the kingdom. Peter was used to open the door for 3,000 people to come into the church. Not long after that, Peter was on the, on the top of it, or on the roof of the house, Sleeping, had, a, had this vision, this dream. God let down this, this, this sheet, and here was all these unclean animals. And, and um, God says to him, Peter, rise and eat. And he said, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. God said to him, whatever I call clean, you should not call unclean. Immediately, almost, there was a doc knock on the door, and here was... Uh, messengers from Cornelius's house, who was a convert to Judaism, a Gentile convert to Judaism. Peter goes with them to Cornelius's house, and the whole household, the whole family, is their lives are opened up to to Jesus and to the reality of Him in their lives. Peter was used to open the hearts of these people, these lives, to the kingdom. It wasn't long after that, and. Paul came along, Saul, Paul came along, and he was the missionary to the Gentiles, Gentile community. And people were accepting Christ, and it came to a conflict over circumcision. And so they had this council, and they said, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to require these Gentiles to be circumcised? And it was Peter and his testimony of what God did in Cornelius' house that opened up the door, the hearts of the Gentiles worldwide, you, me, so that we could be a part of the kingdom of heaven. You know, when I was a junior in high school, 
my folks moved from Seal, Washington to Goldendale, Washington. And uh, we moved in into this house out in the country. It was on a ranch. My folks didn't didn't rent the the property, just the house and the outbuildings. And but there was a family that owned the farm, the ranch on the back side of the farm, whose names were Bellamy. And the Bellamy family had been responsible for the Church of the Nazarene being established there in Goldendale. And here they were. Before we moved in, they had covenanted with with the Lord. They were going. They're praying with the Lord about five mile radius around their ranch. They were praying for all the people that lived in all those ranches around there. And they were not only praying, but they were going to those people and talking to them, getting acquainted with them, and inviting them to the Church of the Nazarene. So we moved in on a weekend. I think something like Thursday. They were there, knocking on the door, introducing themselves, and um, you know inviting us to church. And my mother, at that time, was the only professing Christian in our family. My dad probably, I mean, she was the only practicing Christian. My dad would have probably been a, you know, know, said he was, but he wasn't practicing. And we, well, we started attending the church. And this was in September. Come March, February or March, they had a traveling evangelist in that church. I don't know what his name was. It doesn't really matter. But I remember that Sunday morning service similar to this when the Holy Spirit settled on that congregation after he gave an invitation. And right about where you guys are sitting, there was about a half a dozen of us junior high boys. Every one of us hit that altar. But it wasn't just us boys. The whole altar, the whole front of the church was filled. I and my two brothers, my oldest sister, my my father... All were converted, wonderfully transformed in that service that, that morning. And because of that, I've got a brother that's a pastor in California. I've got a sister that was married to a pastor. He had a stroke not too long ago, so he's not able to continue pastoring. I've got a, another sister that was married, who's passed away, but she was married to a man that studied to be a pastor. And um, another sister that's married to a Roman, uh, not, not a Roman, but a Russian Orthodox bishop. Um, and, and my brother that's not even a pastor has probably filled every role that there is in the Church of the Nazarene as far as anything but a pastor. He's been responsible for serving on church board for years. You know, Jesus said he would build his church. And one of the keys is people. I would ask you this morning, are you allowing the keys of the kingdom that Jesus promised to give to us to be a part of your life? Have you accepted those keys? Have you opened your life to the Holy Spirit who is truly the one that enables all the other keys to function? Have you allowed Him to fill your life with a power, the passion, you know, the presence his presence. Here, not too long ago, I read in, a, in the American Family Association Journal an article written by Stacy Long. And she interviewed a man by the name of Richard Owen Roberts, the founder of International Waking Ministries. And that ministry's mission is marketed by a sense of urgency arising from three strong indicators that renewal is needed in the church. First, there is little distinction between professing Christians and the world. 
little distinction between us that's sitting here this morning and the ones that's not here. Second, there are vast numbers of people who think they're Christians but know virtually nothing about the Bible. I've said for a long time that Christianity in the United States is about a mile wide and about an inch deep. Thirdly, witnessing is rare among lay people and not much more common among clergy. And in this article, it says, America's not yet primed for revival despite the evident need. Roberts points out there have been, in, historically, there are in four stages that lead to revival. Moral and spiritual decline, which I think we would, we would agree that that's where we're at in this nation, a moral and spiritual decline. Then righteous judgment from God. And then God raises up a person. First, first of all, yeah, God raises up a person with a message for revival. You know, back in the time when the Spirit moved on that church and my family was converted, Billy Graham was the pastor for the nation. The Spirit of God was moving on our nation. And then last of all, the people themselves, we Christians, call on God in fervent prayer and God raises up a deliverer. Essentially, revival is what God does for us. What we're really talking about is God himself drawing his people, resulting in the depths of repentance and fresh love for him. When the word of God's heard, people don't feel like they have to think about it. You know, when they hear, hear a pastor preach and the message comes close, they don't think, well, I've got to go home and think about this. Their first reaction is to respond to it, to act upon it. That immediate response has a powerful impact on the whole unsaved world. Revival is in the church, awakening in the world. And right now the world doesn't believe in Christ because it doesn't believe in most church members it knows, Robert says. And you know in another article I read just, just this last week, 20% of the people in the United States, one out of five people say they do not know a Christian. One out of five people say they don't know a Christian here in the United States. Robert says, but let the church members, let us become like Christ and the world will suddenly be tremendously interested. That's what happened on Pentecost. That's what happened to Peter. And this week across America, Billy Graham, my hope with Billy Graham is is being promoted. The church where I pastored over in Boise, some of the people are, 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 have been planning for this and preparing for it. We've been given a little booklet called the Matthew Manual, and in it, says, in it it says, people often do not see their need for Christ. They don't understand that he is the answer to the emptiness they feel. They think the real need is something they can identify, such as broken and disappointing relationships, guilt over the wrong things they have done, loneliness, stress. 87% of people today say they're stressed out. Life without meaning, inability to overcome their dark side, pain of the present or the past. And we know, this, this little book says, that a relationship with Jesus is the answer to the deepest needs that people have. Do you folks know that? A relationship with Jesus is the deepest need that we have. Our greatest need is to find forgiveness by receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. But many today don't know they need Christ. 
or don't know they need the forgiveness for sin. Many people don't even know how to define or even describe sin. They think their need may be to restore troubled marriage, to get rid of loneliness, or to find meaning in life. And these needs are all just symptoms of a greater problem, a missing relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it's through meeting the needs of people that Jesus builds his church. And the greatest need of all is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Which he extends to all who will confess their sins, repent, invite him into their hearts and lives. I would ask you this morning, who is in the radius of your influence? You know, you don't have to say five miles around where you live, but who's in the radius of your influence? Who does your life touch? Are you living like Christ before them? Are you expressing your love for them? You know, yesterday sitting here in the service, listening to those testimonies about Jim's life, I couldn't think, I couldn't help but think, every one of us ought to take Jim and his example to heart. To be a man like him, consistent in, with a man of integrity, People knew who he was, and they respected him, whether they were Christian or not. Are you praying for the people in your influence? Are you endeavoring to get to know them better? Do you know what their needs are? Have you shared with them how Jesus can meet those needs? Have you shared how they can open their hearts and lives to him? Jesus will build his church. But he does it through us. You know, the last time I was here, just a few weeks ago, missionary Heap was here, and he talked about what was going on in Brazil. And I remember he said that it was because of the movement of the Holy Spirit in that whole big country of Brazil that God, that the people were moving and responding to him. We need to pray for a movement of God's Holy Spirit throughout our nation, throughout you know, this, this valley of John Day and throughout our own lives, we need to pray for a movement of the God's Holy Spirit. We need to pray that the Spirit will be there to help us when crises come in people's lives so that we can help them, show them how Jesus can meet their needs, how Jesus can help them with the crisis. Jesus is the one who can cure every crisis. We need to pray for ourselves that we will be conscious of the move of God's Spirit on our heart, on our life. You know, one of the things I'm so grateful for is that when I'm in this church sanctuary, whether in this capacity or just visiting, I sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. Folks, we need to be responding to Him. We need to respond to him. He's very, very specific about what he wants changed in our lives. We don't need to argue with him about it. We need to respond and do what he says. And we need to pray that God's Holy Spirit will make us bold to witness to those who need to know him. Are you willing to accept these keys to the kingdom? 
Jesus said he would build his church. He wants to do it through us, through you. Let us pray. Father, thank you.